Welcome to the Change in Nature podcast. Inspiring people, inspiring change. For more episodes of this podcast, as well as retreats and offerings to help you change in nature, visit our website, changeinnature.org. Okay, you ready to go? I am ready to go. Brilliant. <laughs> so today I'm with Jonathan Porritt. Jonathan is one of the UK's leading environmentalists, campaigners, change makers and writers, having authored numerous books on how we can live more sustainable lives and has ran the Green Party, Friends of the Earth, Sustainable Development Commission and is currently chair of Forum for the Future. That's about it. <laughs> you packed in a lot, Jonathan. Yes. And <laughs> I've been also... at it a long time. So. <laughs> and you've also inspired a lot of people in the worlds of civil society, business and politics. Maybe we could start the interview today by talking about what inspires you to do mm. what you do. Yeah. Well, as you can imagine, I kind of reflect on the things that make me really excited today. 2019, in comparison to things that made me really excited when I got first got involved <clears throat> in the early 1970s, and those were sort of critical years. I started reading stuff in uh, 72, and then joined the Green Party in 74, and got involved in all of that from that point on. So really, it's the early 70s through to now, uh, nearly 20 years into this century. And although there are considerable variations in the way I prioritise things at the moment, the passion that I have is pretty much the same now that it was then. And that falls into two, two principal drivers for me. The first was what got me into teaching. I taught for 10 years uh, in a wonderfully challenging uh, school in Chet's Bush in uh, the 70s and 80s, finished there in 1984, when I went to Frenzia. Um, but my, uh, my passion for teaching and young people was what persuaded me that that was a really important part of my, or going to be a really important part of my life. And so much so that I thought I was going to start off life as a lawyer, started doing a solicitor's course, found it crushing in so many different ways that after about six weeks I realised, no, that's not going to happen. And then went straight into teaching after that, initially without any qualifications, and then went and got myself qualified which is a good thing. So that's still very much part of my passion about what people can do purposefully with their lives today. And making life good for young people is still a central part of what I do. And then the second part, which came in, I guess, after the um, mid-70s, towards the late-70s, was this sense of social justice and how to make for a fairer, more equitable society. Which, of course, for me now is part and parcel of the sustainability story with all the environment stuff, one side of the sustainability coin and social justice, the other side. And in a way, I've spent just years of my life, decades of my life, trying to articulate this con connectedness between social justice and environment, per se. And it may sound completely obvious for people in the sustainability world, that these two things are two sides of one coin, but there is no automatic understanding of that amongst very large numbers of people out there in the world today. 
So those are still my two big drivers in terms of what gives me a sense of meaning and purpose in my life, apart from all the obvious personal things about family and friends and so on. But those are the two professional drivers that make me leap out of bed every morning. And there's obviously a big difference between the world in the 70s and 80s yeah. and the world today. I mean, how would you describe the state of the world we're in today? I can't tell you how upsetting it is to realise, come to the realisation that everything that those early heroes of the sustainability movement were talking about has pretty much landed in our lives today, whether you're talking about injustice or you're talking about climate or talking about population growth or consumption. It's everywhere today. And the impact of that on our lives and on the natural world is everywhere today. So it is occasionally not helpful to go back and look at some of those early writings about the likely state of the world in the 21st century if we didn't change our ways in the 20th century, which is what most of the writing was about at that time. And I happened to come across this little book called Blueprint for Survival, published by the uh, Ecologist magazine in 1970, early 1970s. And that's only, I don't know, 85 pages long, and it pretty much says, look, here's the deal. We live on this planet, we are having an impact on it already, our appetite for more of everything is growing all the time. The planet may be able to sustain that, we do it in the right way, but after a certain point it won't. So we're gonna to have to recalibrate what we mean by progress, prosperity, growth, better lives for people, etc. And the whole of the literature of the 70s and 80s is basically following the same line as that. So it isn't, it isn't happy for me to look back and say 45 wasted years, 50 wasted years, because I know that had we done some of the basics during that time, we would not be facing the really hor horrendously problematic challenges that we face now. I just know, you, I know that, because you can see what changes have happened in the last 50 years. So that's not, that's not a good thing for one's psychological equilibrium. But on the other hand, today things are certainly moving faster. People are much more aware of limitations of the conventional paradigms that have driven society for the last 50 years. People are much more open to rethinking some of these um, revealed truths, as it were, about the last 50 years. They know that we've come to an end in terms of a particular kind of consumption-driven growth at all costs uh, economics, there's a lot of confusion as to what comes next. And to help with that confusion, <laughs> um, we need inspiring ideas. Yeah. And one of your books was called Capitalism as If the World Matters. Yeah. And how can we live our lives as if the world matters? Yeah, well, that was my attempt at that time to reconcile the extraordinary vibrancy and dynamism of capitalist economies um, of different kinds. There are many, many different variations of capitalism. But 
it was clear to me, has been clear to me throughout my life, that capitalism isn't just going to go away. It is the dominant social big idea which will shape whatever else happens on this planet until we find something very different. So Capitalism is the World Matters was a two-year inquiry to work out whether or not there was a variant of capitalism that could deliver just, compassionate, sustainable lives for however many people are on the planet. And I think, personally, I'm convinced that there is. It wouldn't count as capitalism for a lot of capitalists today who would be very nervous about what some of the precepts underpinning that particular kind of capitalism would look like. But you can't turn your back on some of these massive drivers in people's lives today about how markets operate, about opportunities to do better for themselves and their families and their communities, about how innovation works. These are all embedded in deeply in some of the um, economic realities of our lives today. So living as if the world mattered and organising our economy as if the world mattered remain the central challenges for us today, basically. And you have to start with the economy as a whole, because if you can't get the macroeconomics right, then the microeconomics isn't going to work at organisational or company level, which means that the personal economy that we all try to make sense of, how we live our own lives, isn't going to work either. So that sounds to a lot of people horrendously top down, because <laughs> they do somehow think that the revolution is going to be driven bottom up by people just doing everything so radically differently that the system will change. I don't subscribe to that. I think that the levers of power in our world today are in the hands of such um, hostile forces that we have to have a top-down, bottom-up story. And that means we have to be able to articulate what a macroeconomic system would look like as if the world mattered. And that's where a whole host of different disciplines come into um, the frame about how we think that stuff through, natural capital being a sort of critical part of it, um, planetary boundaries and the absolute imperative of not exceeding those planetary boundaries, minimum conditions around equality and social justice. These would all shape a very different kind of macroeconomic order. Um, and not enough work is done at that level still. There's a new book coming out um, in a couple of weeks' time, a guy called Peter Victor, who's been working away at the whole notion of green macroeconomics with Tim Jackson at Surrey University for the last 20 years. It's probably the first book in that area since Tim's um, Prosperity Without Growth, which is now must be 15 years ago. So it's, we don't spend enough time trying to design an economics that would actually prioritise things so differently that we'd have a prospect of genuinely sustainable good lives for people. Mm. And what would those good lives look like? So um, you mentioned prosperity without growth, mm. which um, you commissioned, I believe, as mm. chairman of the Sustainable Development Commission. And part of the central message of that, that book and that report was how I saw it was not just the economy's got to change, but also people's attitudes has to mm, change. Yeah. That actually, we can live really um, prosperous, meaningful and full lives 
without necessarily the um, huge consumerism and materialism that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm still absolutely persuaded that's necessary. The whole idea of sort of greening our dominant models of consumption and production sufficiently to put the global economy on a sustainable track doesn't, doesn't really work for me. It's what we have to do to get to the point where we've got a realistic chance of wealth creators, businesses and others seeing that this is an agenda they've got an important part in, but it's not going to get us to the place where we need to be. And so that is where the challenge needs to come forward about what people see in their own lives as real quality, how they interpret their own sense of opportunity, um, how we dematerialize, not just through reducing the throughput of energy and raw materials in our economy, but dematerialize in terms of simplifying our own lives and focusing on the things that really do improve um, what it means to have a good quality of life rather than on some of the substitutes and proxies that have become so dominant in, in, our, in all of our lives, to be honest, over so many years. So that's a much deeper challenge. And there are lots of people in the world, particularly of corporate sustainability, who say, oh, don't go there, because as soon as you're going to go there, you're going to have to stop talking about things like sustainable consumption or green consumption or um, the circular economy and all of these nice, powerful ideas that we've invented to try and square the circle, you're going to have to start using really difficult words like less, as in, no, it's not that we're going to consume differently. We're going to have to consume less. And we're going to have to reduce our demand for a whole host of different areas of economic activity, products and services of one kind or another. And that's going to be amazingly complicated because it will take away much of the drive for economic growth that is so important for politicians today. And what are some of those things that can increase a person's quality of life? So if it was someone who's concerned about the environment, they want to live in a different way, what are some of those um, avenues they can explore that can help them do that? I love the fact that living more sustainably is just such an easy idea to grasp. I mean, it really is. There are only so many basic areas of human activity that need to be thought through in that way. And they're essentially around things like food and how we produce, purchase and use food around mobility, how we get from A to B in our lives and how we can use that to improve our own quality of life, reduce some of the hassles that um, encumber so many people's lives at the moment. Um, for those who are in a fortunate enough position to have a pension or money that they can invest in something, the whole area about what we do with our money is critical, all the way through from ethical consumption to ethical pensions to making sure that Pretty much every decision we make that entails money going from one person to another is put through the lens of what would it mean to do that in more sustainable ways. And you can keep going like this, and it's not, it's not very difficult. And in each and every one of these areas, what the planet asks us of, of us now in terms of reducing our massive footprint 
on those planetary systems are all the things that we might be doing in our own lives personally to reduce the stress and the hassle and the um, unnecessary, wasteful, profligate kind of consumption that's causing such problems and build up the positive side of our personal ledgers, as it were, by all the things that will make people feel better, have healthier lives, um, more contact with friends, family, community in particular, and basically find so many different ways of saying at the end of each day, that was a day well lived. And it's actually not very complicated. Well, I don't think it's very complicated, but the trouble is, does it speak as powerfully to people as the opportunity to meet needs and people's sense of aspiration by buying more stuff that they have been persuaded will make for a better life for them? Does, it, does our message about living simpler, less costly lives, more connected lives, does it speak to people as powerfully as, yeah, well, it's not good out there, is it? But, hey, you know, just go shopping. Sort it out. Get on the computer. Order another thing that you might want. It doesn't. If, if our alternative did speak as powerfully to people as that one, we wouldn't be looking at such a parlous state of affairs as we are now. Mind you, we don't have billions and billions of dollars of marketing and advertising spend to make our alternative view of what makes for good lives come alive for people. I often think, okay, just give me the equivalent spend of a Unilever. For instance, just, just that. I don't, I'm not asking for the, the entire whole amount of money chucked at this stuff, but just give me that for a couple of years and put it in the hands of people who know how to make this stuff work. Do you feel that's one of the biggest challenges is making the more simple life, a more sustainable life, more aspirational? Yeah, definitely. Compelling, interesting, um, speaking to all the things that we like about ourselves and hope for ourselves in terms of what we can do for ourselves and other people, our communities, our families and so on. People know this instinctively. It's not as if it's a, as if it's buried so deep in us that we have to have massively complicated um, engagements with psychoanalysts to bring it out. People know what actually we all owe each other and what we owe those who are dearest to us and our communities and the planet. It's, but it's, Difficult to make that the central organising principle of people's lives when there's so much else that is distracting and looks so seductive and appealing and all the rest of it. Um, and I'm very conscious that that aspirational side of it is what has held back a lot of the um, opportunities for sustainability thinking over the years. It just hasn't been associated with um, the sense of ambition and achievement and this is what I think is uh, what I need to do for myself in this life. It hasn't had that kind of resonance in people's lives. Anywhere in the political spectrum that you go, this is still seen as an unsellable proposition that we can speak most powerfully to people's sense of aspiration about a better world by talking about dematerialization, about simplicity, about 
basic values that will enable us to live better together, to live better on this planet. That, you know, you see the Lib Dems play it a bit, you occasionally hear a Labour politician stuttering into speech about what it might mean for the Labour Party, but you don't ever hear Tories talk about it. Um, and you hear the Green Party, but even the Green Party doesn't really speak about aspiration in the way that I think they could. And that, of course, is connected to the world. And um, you've referenced a few times the state of the world. And I was reading one of your blogs this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there was a really great quote that I might read out. It <laughs> said, if you're not shit scared about the likely impacts of accelerating climate change, you're not awake or you're dead to the future of humankind. Yeah. And you kind of claim that a lot of people, particularly over the last decade, just seem to have grown tin ears. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I really like that so. analogy. Well, you see it all around you. I mean, I, don't, I hardly ever bump into anybody who I could categorise as a climate denier or somebody who would say, no, I don't really, you know, I think you've got the science all wrong there. You don't, you don't meet people like that. Deep down, there may be some who honestly do still subscribe to the idea that the science isn't rock solid. But by and large, most people, and this isn't my little bubble, this is talking to people who are not in the sustainability bubble, people know that this stuff is, is happening and that we have let loose an extraordinary sequence of events as a consequence of our uh, emissions of greenhouse gases over the last 40, 50 years. The problem is they've banked that now. Yep, they've sort of seen that's got to be part of what politicians should be doing, businesses should be doing, they should be doing a bit, you know, if possible. But they haven't truly internalised the current state of the science and the consequences of that for the way we live. They really haven't. And doing that without making people feel catastrophically depressed is incredibly difficult. How, on the one hand, do you up the, the urgency story about what is going on and the time-limited sense of what needs to happen where, when, over the next 12, 15, 20 years. And how do you keep pushing that urgency story, occasionally even using phrases like, it's going to be too late if we don't do it in that period of time. And at the same time, doing such way that people feel, well, that's, yeah, that could be really exciting. That could definitely improve some of the things that aren't working well today. We've got countless opportunities to improve the ways in which our economies work through efficiency, better technology, different lifestyles. Those are the three critical things that would make a difference. And you have to do all of that incredibly aspirationally, because otherwise the despair that lies behind the, if it's not too late yet, it's going to be too late pretty soon, people can't cope with that. Can't cope with it. How do you cope as a change maker as someone who is reading all the latest science mm. so you're you are very aware of the likely impacts and the likely world we're heading towards 
that's a challenge. And how do you meet that challenge? How do you um, mm. feel into that despair at the same time as keeping motivated and keep going? Yeah, well, the honest answer that is with growing difficulty because this is not a, a static scene. This is, we're looking at incredibly complicated, dynamic system change going on in the planet's workings of one kind or another. Every year things move a little bit more in the wrong direction. And some years they move really very fast in the wrong direction. So you can't kind of lock in a settled opinion about how bad is climate science and then live the rest of your life on that analysis because that analysis has to reflect what's happening with the science. So last year was just the most awful year in terms of trying to grapple with um, opportunities to drive a faster process of change and work with the, the kind of systems that we have at the moment, political, socio-economic, uh, cultural, psychological systems that we have at the moment to, make, to bring about that change faster. So every year that you get more complexity and uh, impending damage built into the system just because of the way the planet is changing, it gets harder to go on telling people that we've got a real opportunity now to create better lives for 9, 10 billion people on this planet. And that particularly is the case when you look at the impact of climate change on food production systems. And there are many, many aspects of, of, of what the science of climate change is telling us now. But perhaps the, some of the worst data that emerged in 2018 was around the impact of these accelerated climatic changes on our ability to produce food sustainably for X billion people. And some of that stuff is much more frightening than the stuff about continuing to burn fossil fuels. I mean, to be honest, stopping burning fossil fuels is relatively simple. It's politically vexatious because so many politicians are still so dependent on petrodollars of one kind or another. But in terms of the shift and accelerating the shift to get to a near-zero carbon electricity system, energy system, it's relatively simple. Near-zero carbon food production systems, food consumption systems, infinitely more complicated. Yet we probably give about 5% of the climate debate to that stuff because we're so focused on the decarbonisation through our energy systems, which is understandable historically. So how do we do that? Um, I think you can't do it on any sort of what I call flimsy, specious optimism, brittle optimism, based on the, a sort of understandable analysis that says, ah, oh, yes, but if you give people too much of the truth, they'll just back away and they'll deny it and they won't engage at all. So you have to be optimistic. You have to be upbeat. You have to start with that as your opening premise. That's the only way people will respond to you. I don't go with that. That's not, that for me is not honest. That's why I really go to great lengths to avoid the notion of optimism per se. So there's a whole school of climate optimism out there and thinking oh my god you know this is not this is not solid this is not intellectually as solid as it needs to be 
So we have to start with where physical reality is. And from that, you can talk to people and engage with people and hopefully still inspire people about the opportunities for change that now have to be expedited, just move forward a lot faster. And you can still do that. I feel I can still do that. I don't feel anywhere in my approach to this stuff that it would be honest for me to say it's too late. I've given up on this now. Um, I don't think these changes can be done in time. But every year, if we're being honest, it gets harder to say that. That actually brings me to another blog that you've, you wrote last year saying how to stay sane in a stressed out world. <laughs> yeah. Where you talked about a friend who was suffering from burnout. Yeah. And how reconnecting with the natural world can help you stay sane and balanced. Yeah. And it was in reference to a, a programme we ran together yeah. in nature that really helped align people's sense of purpose but also helped refresh and renew yeah. uh, in, in, a, in an age of burnout, really. Yeah. So I'd be very interested to see and ask what your experience of that retreat was and how it benefited you. Yeah. I'm very conscious of this uh, side of my own personal resilience now because it is quite difficult um, sustaining the kind of work I do, which is which is geared towards the solutions agenda in one way or another, um, as well as towards some, you know, critical campaigns, um, more in the social justice and other side of things. It's quite hard to sustain that if at the same time, at the back of your mind, you've got all this stuff bearing down on you saying, really, do you think it's going to make a difference? Is that worth it? You can't, it's very hard to, to get your energy focused in this way if the voices of doubt, let alone despair, are building up in your own personal makeup about these things. So access to the natural world and experiencing the delight of being in the natural world and the connectivity that that brings has always been a pretty important part of reinforcing my defence mechanisms, if you like, of keeping me solid about the reasons why we're doing what we're doing and how important it is and how joyful it can be to see how astonishing nature is as a source of inspiration and joy and healing for people. And every time you see that, it just reminds you that we've sort of turned our back on this incredible opportunity to have healthier, more fulfilled, more inspired lives through nature. And I'm not saying we've completely turned our back on that, but we've relegated it to a kind of second order opportunity for people who lead, if you like, more comfortable lives than most people on the planet do today. That's what we've turned it into. And that makes me really sad. And I'm pretty concerned in my own, speaking very personally now, I don't spend enough time doing that. I've talked to you about this, Andy, because I'm, I'm very conscious that I live too much on the theoretical notion of the importance of nature in people's lives <laughs> and not enough on the practical notion. I was thinking about this the other day. I, there's just this 
amazing new book has been published, um, bringing together all the science over the last 40, 30, 40 years, demonstrating health benefits, physiological, physical, mental health benefits from being in nature in one way or another. Access to nature, whatever you like to call it. An incredible piece of work. It's sort of stuff that we did, in fact, start looking at when I was chair of the Sustainable Development Commission and published a little paper at that time. This is now a kind of comprehensive book. And I was sitting there at my desk and I was just kind of reading through these, these pages. One unbelievably inspiring abstract after another about people whose lives have been transformed and individuals doing that and prisoners and offenders and, you know, people with Alzheimer's and everything else suddenly having these incredible uplifts in mental and physical health. And I suppose I'd been sitting there for about an hour, to be honest, just looking through this. And, and I suddenly thought, this is typical of me. This is bloody typical, because I am getting a real high from reading about all this incredible stuff going on out there in nature. When did I last get out there and have a walk myself of a similar kind? And maybe this was a particularly busy time last year, I can't remember what it was. So I got out my diary and I looked, and I'm ashamed to say that it was three months, three months before I had, since I had had any serious opportunity a, a, a long walk it happened to be to um <laughs> to work this through for myself personally in practice so i am very conscious not i don't think it's i wouldn't i hope i'm not being too lenient on myself i don't think it's hypocrisy as such i think it's um poor management of my time to be honest and uh a failure to take the decisions I ought to take to make it a more constant part of my own life. And funnily enough, I'm, I'm saying that partly because I'm very conscious of the need to do it more as the complexities of being an advocate for positive change get harder, um, climate, etc. I almost need more of that now than I used to do before. So personally, it's very important to me, but I... Um, I am ambivalent about the practice, even if I am rock solid on the the ideas that lie behind it. So you're rock solid on the theory. <laughs> you maybe have an aspiration to get out to nature more than once every three months. Yeah. Going forward from this interview, um, and how about getting together with a like-minded group in nature? Because I found that one of the benefits of the programme that we ran was there were 20 like-minded people who are working to drive change in lots of different areas yeah. of, of business and society. And it really felt like um, a strong sense of togetherness and simplicity. I mean, we were getting, yeah. fetching our water from the stream. We were cooking together. What would you say to, let's say someone in business about why in this day and age where we are constantly overwhelmed with emails mm. and distractions, why you feel it's important mm. for, to come together as a group in nature? Yeah. Well, I do love those opportunities and they are amazing. And you come away from them 
fired up by a sense of promise, basically, not just because relationships between people and relationships with the natural world have been reaffirmed or strengthened, reinforced, whatever it might be, but also because you can see how, how people's lives are just massively improved as a consequence of that. And it's quite a small thing, two, three days, just in a group doing this together. And as you know, and, and I feel um, badly about this, one of the things that we tried to do in Form for the Future was to get, we, we called it reconnections, and happily shared a, an opportunity with you in, in the final uh, stages of that. But I tried to get reconnections off the ground in the forum from in the early part of 2002. And we intended to turn this into a big program in the forum where we would have our business partners and our kind of sustainability practitioners and big chief execs and all the rest of it. And forum would be one of the mechanisms which would give them an opportunity to come together, share that space with other people, not just business people, but other people, and find their own lives enriched and improved and maybe their ability to be a true leader in that regard enhanced as well. Um, and, yeah, we struggled. I have to admit, I don't, we, maybe the forum just didn't get it right. Maybe we didn't have the right model. We didn't think through the design properly. We ran it six or seven times, and every time I felt it was amazing and so, so reaffirming of what the forum stood for in terms of its values and its deeper advocacy about thinking differently about the natural world. But we never got it to the point where we could turn it into a standard element in forums engagement with our business partners. So I feel very disappointed about that, and, and I'm still... I'm sorry that it's probably too late for me now in the forum, being what they describe as a bit of a wasting asset now. It's too late for me to get something like that going, but it isn't too late for me to encourage people to take those opportunities when they come. They are massively important to people individually, not just business, business leaders, but to people with any level of responsibility in organisations. They provide a different sense of perspective. And they also provide a lot of very powerful reminders that we're not doing a good enough job, frankly, in bringing nature into the way we live our lives and the way we act as leaders with other people. That is something we can do. You don't only have to be out in nature, we have to be effective advocates for bringing nature into our lives more intelligently in a way that people can say, yeah, that's, we understand that, that's really important. What makes you feel most positive going forward? Because your latest book is called The World We Made and it's a futurist account of how the world has changed by 2050, so it's looking back. Um, it was very optimistic Hopeful, not optimistic. Okay, it was hopeful. Um, so, rather than being optimistic, <laughs> what gives you most hope? Um, I start from the point you can't have any hope at all unless you can see that awareness is changing in society. And I do see now a process of change that is enormously encouraging. Maybe that's because I've been at it for far too long, but I can see that going on in in so many different ways, not just formally in terms of how these things are in, 
incorporated into strategies and so on, but informally in the way people talk about what's happening in the world today. Um, that awareness is absolutely crucial. crucial. Out of the, that sort of foundation of awareness, I take enormous hope out of what young people are bringing to bear on this today. Um, one of the reasons why I'm still very involved in education now, in higher, higher education rather than secondary school education, is because I still think that it's young people who will, who are now and will in future accelerate this process of change in a way that people find very difficult to understand. Um, and I'm fascinated by looking at little pointers of that, which shows what that change process driven by young people might look like. Um, I have a residual confidence that the world's faith systems will become positive agents of change as we grapple with these issues. It's always um, controversial to say that to some people who think that when you look at where the world is today from a perspective of religion unleashed on the world in all sorts of negative and phenomenally destructive ways, you think, really, faith, is, faith systems are going to be part of the positive change process? But if you unpack it in the right kind of way, I see no reason why they won't be, and I, indeed I'm confident they will be. Um, I suppose I have to put in the list of things technology is part of the deal. Some of the breakthroughs going on in technology today are so staggering and enable us to do so much for so much less throughput of energy and raw materials. So I don't discount the technology side of it. It does make me very confident and hopeful about a lot of things. Um, so all of these things come together in a way that says, okay, we've got the resources, the intellectual, cultural, spiritual, technological resources to make it happen. <laughs> what we've got is a generation of political leaders who want to deploy those resources to positive effect in society and put that at the heart of what their political proposition is all about, that that's the leadership they can bring to bear in the world today. And we don't have enough of those. In fact, we honestly hardly have any of them. And that, that then, unfortunately, is not on my hopeful list of things that are going well in the world today because that's not going well. So maybe if we could end with one piece of advice that you would give to anyone who wanted to live a more purposeful life full of meaning and value. Well do all the obvious things around food and travel and energy and anything else and uh, expenditure, consumption, etc. But then do the slightly less obvious things, which is what space are you going to create in your life for nature? How are you going to do that? What does that mean for you personally? And don't just read about it. I'm pointing at myself here. Don't just read about it, but do it. Make it happen. Make it come alive for you. And go on one of these courses. Find out what it would like. Take a bit of a risk. Read some amazing green poetry, for instance, which is one of the things I do. I know it's again, it's a substitute for being out there, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> Great, thank you so much, Jonathan. Good, good. It's been a really inspiring interview. No, it's been lovely. Very nice chance to talk about some of these things. Yeah, and it makes me, having talked about the theory of wanting to go outside, it actually does yes. make me to go outside. So I think well, that's... Well, actually, I could have mentioned, we are going for a, a weekend in Anglesey this weekend. Oh, Lots of good 
walks already identified. You have been listening to the Change in Nature podcast. Inspiring people, inspiring change. For more episodes of this podcast, as well as retreats and offerings to help you change in nature, visit our website, changeinnature.org. Thank you.